everybody, and welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the podcast where good taste and bad taste collide. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. And you're being uh, invaded by the spirit of a game show host, it seems like. You have selected... Something on a game show. <laughs> uh, and you just tipped straight into Mr. Movie Phone. I uh, don't know what voice I am doing. Well, uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I am a film critic. Uh, people call me Whitney Seibold. And uh, yeah, welcome to Critically Acclaimed. This is where we're going to talk about movies. Hi! We review all the films uh, that come out new in theaters except for Tenet. Which... Uh, <laughs> which... which... Well, actually, we don't review any movies that come out in theaters yeah, right now. I guess now. We're, we're reviewing the films that aren't coming out in theaters yeah. right now. The closest theater to us that is playing Tenet mm. is in Oceanside, California. Which is, which a is bit about of a drive. 90 miles south of our current location. Yeah, bit of a drive. Yeah. Bit of a drive. Yeah, also, I can't afford it. Yeah, so not only would you have to pay uh, pay the gas, you'd have to pay for the, the film ticket, mm-hmm. you'd have to sit in a theater uh, where you might not feel safe. No, I wouldn't. And uh, some critics have been uh, bold enough to brave the dangers and go all the way to Oceanside to watch Tenet. Yeah, they know the risks, they're yeah. taking it, uh, um, we're, we're not doing that. Well, there are some cities where it's opened, but there has been no safe option here in Los Angeles for us. And uh, because Christopher Nolan is being such a stickler mm-hmm. and not letting us watch his film on a, a laptop or on a television, yeah, uh, then we is it just have no drive-ins? choice. From what I understand, it was only going to be playing in drive-ins in the cities where it was also being released theatrically. What? So, no, it's not going to be playing in any drive-ins oh, in L.A. because it's not being re- released theatrically in L.A. Uh, if well, first off, we don't have drive-ins in L.A. Oh, I, I mean, we have like I mean, Paramount. There have been like, a few pop-ups of... that have that have come mm-hmm. up, but uh, yeah, it's not really a thing. Anyway, uh, so we're not reviewing Tenet. Sorry, so we're not I... reviewing Tenet, but we are reviewing some other big releases, and we got a big handful of them this week. Yeah, so this week we're reviewing the new releases Mulan, which was supposed to be a theatrical release, and is now a big extra cost premiere on Disney Plus, where you pay your usual monthly fee on Disney Plus, and if you pay an additional, what is it, like $30? 30 bucks, yeah. You can also see Mulan, and then I think in early December that will just be come with the package on Disney Plus. Uh, we also have the new Netflix films, I'm Thinking of Ending Things and Love Guaranteed. We also have The Andorra Hustle, which I believe is uh, some sort of caper film about sweaters. Uh, we've got a documentary. <laughs> sweaters? Yeah. You know, the nice Andorra sweater. Very that's, very soft. And... That's, that's Angora. Well, then I have no from, idea what this movie a... is about. It's about the country of Andorra, oh. which is situated between Spain and France. And it's a, it's a documentary about a banking scandal. We'll get oh. to it. Oh, neat. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we also have a documentary called Feels Good, Man. Hmm. And uh, we have a Shakespeare film called Measure for Measure. And this week on the critically acclaimed streaming club, where every week our patrons select one movie that either Whitney or myself or both of us have never seen before uh, that is available on a streaming service. We are reviewing And God Created Woman. That's right. On the Criterion channel. Have you seen this one before? I hadn't. I this, this, this was not one. Uh, your, uh, your, your selected category, and you got to select the category this week, was uh, films on the Criterion channel from the 1950s specifically. Yeah. Uh, so we had a lot to choose from, and yeah, I chose, then uh, you guys selected And God Created Woman by Roger Vadim, yeah. and uh, starring his uh, very, very soon-to-be ex-wife, Bridget Bardot. 
and they, they uh, broke up like right after making this movie. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, we'll be talking all about that uh, at the tail end of the show. Uh, we have a lot of movies to get to, so we might as well just jump in. I could not afford to see Mulan. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it sucks. Well, I was gonna, I was gonna pay for it, but like then I was like, you know, Labor Day like happened. Like the, the opening week of the weekend was like on a. Yeah. Anyway, I couldn't get my money in time. But, <laughs> well, so, I'm so, uh, sorry. so I didn't get paid in time. Right. So what? What? Tell me about Mulan, uh, which is a remake of a Disney film from the late '90s, which I um, only just recently saw for the first time myself. Okay. Um. It, yeah. It's. It came out in the late '90s. I was already in college by then. Uh, it was not something I was really paying attention to, and hmm. it's you know I guess I was just a little too old to become super familiar with and grow affection for the Mulan animated uh, mm-hmm. movie. Uh, I have I did see it, but uh, yeah, it wasn't wasn't like dear to my heart. I don't think there's any Disney animated films that are really dear to my heart, other than maybe Sleeping Beauty. Okay, uh, but um, it did grow a huge audience. I think no matter what. Disney animated film you're looking at from the 90s, mm. uh, you're going to find who whichever one came out when somebody was eight is mm. the film that they love the most. There's a really decent yeah. chance. And the, even some of the weirder ones that had sort of a like mixed reception. Or, yeah. Hercules, Hunchback of Notre Dame. That's mm. some amazing stuff in it. But also they gave it a mega happy ending, which is always never set right mm. with me. And uh, but a, I like that one just because it's so bizarre. There's amazing stuff in that movie. Mm. There, there's I think every Disney animated movie from the 90s has at least something to recommend it, even though I wouldn't say all of them are good. Okay. I think there's there there was a lot of talent at their animation studio at mm-hmm. the time, and even if the films were badly written but beautifully animated, mm-hmm. there Pocahontas. was uh, <laughs> Tarzan uh, <laughs> and others as well. Uh, but there was there was there was certainly something to recommend. All the Mulan is fantastic. I really, really, I I had gone a long time without seeing Mulan. I wasn't actively avoiding it. I just never, I never actually sat down and watched it. And then I was um, earlier this year. We we were just like we should just finally watch Mulan. My my wife Michelle likes Mulan, so we were just we watch it. Mulan's great. Mulan is gorgeously <laughs> animated. Mulan is a really wonderful story. Um, it's got some really excellent queerness to it that really mm. makes it stand out amongst its peers. It's very upfront about a lot of it. Um, it's actually got like good action. It's like it's you know it's, it's a war film. It's mm-hmm. not bloody or anything, but there are stakes. There are people who could live and die, and it's a good film. I was really really happy with it. It even had like. Because I'd actually seen, I'd seen a couple of Disney animated movies that I'd never seen, like, all in a row. I, wa- I did, like, a, a weekend where I watched Pocahontas, which I'd never seen before. Mm-hmm. Mulan, which I'd never seen before. And Brother Bear, which I'd never seen before. Okay. And I was... Forgot about Brother Bear. Brother Bear holds up really good, actually. <laughs> I was surprised by how good Brother Bear was. Um, but um, I was watching Pocahontas, and I hated the raccoon so much. He's just... <laughs> a cute animal sidekick. He's so annoying. He contributes nothing to the story. And the, and the animators are clearly obsessed with him because they constantly digress mm. to let that raccoon just take over. And I'm like, there's a lot going on right now. Why are we looking at this raccoon? And I was thinking to myself, did Disney just forget how comic relief sidekicks work? And then I saw Eddie Murphy's dragon in Mulan. I'm like, no, no, that's a good way to do it. Like he's he's really <laughs> funny, but he's really integrated with the plot, and so he's actually there's a there's a reason why he's there. And right. well, it's good storytelling. Uh, well, some people are very upset, and you may be upset too that uh, Mushu, the dragon played by Eddie Murphy, is not in this version. 
Uh, Are there any fantasy elements in this version? Well, here's the thing. Uh, Near the end of the movie, when the action is really ramping up and there's all these battles going on, it starts to tilt into sort of wuxia territory, where some of the characters appear to just suddenly develop superpowers. They can Mm. skip and fly a little bit, or they can, like... uh, There's a scene where a general general, uh, dispatches of an entire room of bad guys using nothing but, like, ribbons and curtains in this really implausible sort of way that's really impressive to look at but you know it's kind of supernatural are these just regular normal soldiers who can suddenly do that or are they implied to have like done extra training in order to have achieved no no these? this is just something that mulan and a few of the generals suddenly have the ability to do without explanation no, no there's that's supposed um, to be something you're supposed to train for i think <laughs> okay all right well fair enough well i mean it's it's all fantasy well, anyway. of course it's all fantasy but like there's a tradition mm. anyway let's talk about it. So tell me, uh, so tell me Gong, about the name. Gong Li does play a witch, however. The the, okay. the bad guy oh, from okay. the original animated series has now been turned into two characters, one played by Jason Scott Lee and one played by a supernatural sorceress that he has on his side. Okay. Uh, what was he up to? Not exactly sure. He's invading. Mm. And now we need an army to stop this guy. Uh, that's that. There's I mean, no, there's in no... the original movie, he didn't have a lot of motivation other than he was trying to conquer mm-hmm. China. So, but when when you're going to the trouble of casting, you know, an, an all Chinese cast and uh, trying to make this in live action and try to make it a little bit more realistic, I think a little bit more. Uh, explanation as to the geopolitics. Even a few cursory words would have been fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, because if you look at like Mulan, and if you look at like a lot of the Disney animated films, especially like when they were doing uh, sort of that fairy tale or the, that larger than life motif that they like, Princess and the Frog feels like more grounded, for example. But something mm-hmm. like Pocahontas, Mulan, uh, uh, Beauty and the Beast—they're telling these like kind of really these they're telling stories in really broad strokes. Yeah. And as a result, you can kind of skim a little bit and just portray the bad guy as just really evil, and that's kind of enough. Yeah, but yeah, yeah but well, like, in, but the, in, but the movies short, are like less than ninety minutes yeah, long. Say, and like, a, sh- a short animated film—that's fine. Yeah, that's my point. Yeah. You can actually communicate a lot with just the character design in an animated film. Hmm. You, you get like a, a nine-foot-tall Hulk with claws and five eyes and extra fangs. Okay, that's a bad guy, hmm. and you, we a lot is communicated just through the look. Um, yeah, this is uh, a live-action thing, so I think they need to give a little bit more. Uh, lip service to what's actually going on, but the uh, basic premise is war. War were declared uh, against this dude, and the emperor, played in one scene by Jet Li, little cameo. Okay, cool. Uh, has said all of all able-bodied sons need to all able-bodied men need to co- come join the army. You're drafted. Yeah. Uh, si Ma plays Mulan's father. Mulan. Uh, seen very early on, like in that uh, the opening scenes of Brave doing outdoing warrior stuff, mm. just to show that she's interested in warrior stuff and yeah. is really good with a bow and arrow, because they're always good with a bow and arrow, aren't they? Well, and uh, they didn't have TV. Because, you got to you got to do something with your time. <laughs> because her father is so old, uh, she decides to pose as his son rather than his daughter mm. and enlist herself, protecting her father. Right. Uh, Mulan in this film is played by uh, Yifei Liu, uh, who has gotten in some political hot water recently. I'm not going to get into that. But uh, she is, unfortunately, quite an uninteresting protagonist. 
You uh, think it's she, the acting or you think it's the the writing? Her acting is fine. It's it's definitely the writing because mm. she is given no notes other than that really boring action hero type of steely determination. She is here to make sure she can protect her father and fight for honor. And that's kind of it. I don't really see what her motivation is as a character. She's just sort of this bland action well, ar- archetype they, rather than being an actual character. Do they leave in the sequence? Because in the animated movie, we're introduced to Mulan, and she is trying to fulfill hmm. uh, a very gendered role. She's trying to yeah. uh, prove herself a proper lady hmm. uh, within her, her yeah, town that, so that she can marry well. And that's, she just, that scene's in the remake as well. That scene's yeah. in the remake, and she just bombs it, and now... She doesn't have any options left for her, and so mm. she's committed to this for a variety of reasons. One, she's helping her ailing father, and two, she doesn't really have mm. an identity to have anymore, and so she's clinging to whatever she can get. Does it? Does it feel like that? Does it feel like there's like? A, does oh, it feel like there's like uh, th- that? There is an identity crisis involved here, or is it something else? No, there's work? no identity crisis involved, and in fact, uh, just like most of these big live-action remakes of these Disney animated films, it does feel very perfunctory. They're just hitting plot points Mm. with a lot of really impressive production design, a lot of really elaborate costumes, uh, big, expansive uh, special effects and battle sequences that go on and on. The action is impressive. There's no problem with that, but it is an issue when you have a protagonist who has no interests besides that aforementioned steely determination and doesn't seem to have any love or passion for anything in the world. Mm. Uh, There's some, quote, funny supporting characters, but none of them really emerge uh, as part of an ensemble. They just sort of throw in jokes from the side, which means there's no levity to this film either. Uh, In Mm. the original, you had this whole slew of funny supporting characters as, you know, the other soldiers in the army. And then you also had the funny animal sidekick. And you can think those funny animal sidekicks are really annoying. Often they are, but, you Mm. know they all do provide at least some comic relief. They serve a function. There's no comic relief here. As such, it gets really kind of tiresome really quickly. That's annoying. Yeah. What, does this... It's it's one of those movies where, again, this was going to be a major theatrical release. In fact, this was actually going to come out in March, and they pushed it back at the last possible minute. They had actually had a premiere. Yeah. Like a proper Hollywood Boulevard premiere for this movie, and then the quarantine happened, Mm. and it got pulled from theaters. A lot of critics who saw it early had to hold their reviews until now. But some critics got to see it on the big screen, and Mm. what I was going to say is, you say it's a visual spectacle. That's Mm. awesome. Do you feel like this is one of those movies that would have played better on a big screen than it is at home? Every film plays better on a big screen. Okay, but do you feel... Okay, Uh, let's take that as a baseline, because I know you feel that way, and mostly I agree, Mm. but I think there are some films that benefit maybe from a more intimate setting where Mm. you can maybe focus a little bit more, but... Yeah, host. Yeah, host is a good example. Yeah, host, 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 watch host at home. Yeah, watch the, that on the big yeah, screen. There, there you go. It would probably still work on a big screen, but I think it's more effective. And I think searching any of those yeah, like sort of digital the, the laptop genre. Yeah, but others as well. But my point is, is that do you feel it is it it would significantly have worked better? As a theatrical mm. experience, as opposed to where maybe the sumptuous visual spectacle could be so immersive and yeah. so grand that you could forgive these story elements that aren't coming together? Or do you feel that that's the same no matter what? It's the same no matter what. You might yeah. be a little bit more dazzled by the, the visual yeah. effects if, to see them on a big screen or to hear those sound, you know, the sound in full, uh, full stereo. But 
uh, it, those are not the things that are wrong with this movie. It's the writing. And that those still would have been evident even if you were watching this on a big screen. Uh, this film was directed by Nikki Caro, who mm-hmm. I know from Whale Rider. Yeah. Uh, she exploded on the scene in Whale Rider way back in 2002. Big and, Oscar-nominated uh, movie. She yeah. also did North Country, which is a very respectable film. Really great performances from mm-hmm. Charlize Theron and Francis McDormand in particular. Yeah, yeah. Um, she's a good director. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't see... Uh, and, and she also did The Zookeeper's Wife, which is... I didn't see that one. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. Now she and she's done Mulan, and uh, she's going to be doing the Wuzzles. The what? Don't you remember the Wuzzles? Yeah, but they're turning it into a movie. And Nikki Cara's directing. Evidently, this is a project. This is going to be a real thing. I I apologize to everybody younger than me that my generation is shitting all over you, but yes, we're going to be making a Wuzzles film for you. Look up what, what the Wuzzles were. They, they were a line no. of stuffed toys. The shtick was they were two animals in one. This one's a bumblebee and a lion. It's named Bumble Lion, etc., etc. There was a one-season animated TV series as well, and now they're turning it into a big-budget feature film. Mm. With probably with CGI Wuzzles. So, Nikki Caro can the- work in really soulful, independent molds, but I think is growing increasingly comfortable in sort of a studio well, uh, setting. I mean, that's fine. You can make yeah. you can you can do that by all means. You can but make I've all found, kinds of movies. But I found that her films are better when she's focusing on character yeah. and a uh, little uh, like more intimate emotions. There's no intimacy in something like M- Mulan. This is a big commercial splash and it's not worth the 30 bucks quite frankly. Mm, that's too bad. Uh from what I understand, because of that price point, a lot of people stayed away from Mulan this weekend. Yeah, because it's it's it, and I imagine that's a real issue here because a lot of studios are looking at mm. if people are st- like Tenet came out in theaters and made twenty million dollars in America, mm. uh, give or take. That's way lower than Tenet was going to make. Yeah, and even under the worst circumstances, like, Tenet was going to make at least like seventy million. Like it was going to do better than that. So yeah. they're clearly taking a loss on this. And a lot of people are like, "What's the price point? What's the price point where we can release these films that cost a fortune and needed to make around a billion dollars mm-hmm. in order to justify the expense we had producing them? Because otherwise, they're just sitting on them until the time comes when they can reopen theaters again." And a lot of people are like, "Well, is there some way we can make our money back on this on the home video market?" And this was Disney's big idea: is we already have a streaming service. And there's just going to be a surcharge for this one film. And I guess they decided $30 would be pretty good for families. And I think if you're mm-hmm. looking at, again, if you're like, you've, you've got the, the, the conventional nuclear yeah. family, two parents, two and a half kids, you're already spending at least $50 on a movie theater trip yeah, it's, it's, before you get snacks. Yeah. So $30 is going to seem like a pretty good deal to families. The problem is Mulan also has a lot of appeal to people who don't have families. People who are in their 20s, 30s, don't have families, grew up with the original. People who just like, you yeah, know, the, action movies the, have yeah, that Mulan the, was going to be a crossover film. The the nostalgia crowd is, is staying away from Mulan. Yeah. Uh, Mulan, uh, and unfortunately... Mulan was going to be one of those films that saves the summer. Uh, mm-hmm. They kept they pushed it back, and it was one of those ones where a lot of uh, pundits and, and outlets were writing about how 
this was going to be one of like three films mm-hmm. that was going to like push it, put everything back in place when theaters reopen real soon. And of course, mm-hmm. theaters haven't reopened and they're not going to reopen for a little bit, mm-hmm. at least not here in L.A. Not on mass and not so, at a capacity that can make a real difference. When Disney announced that they were going to be releasing it on their streaming service, it didn't really matter what the price point was. It meant they were taking a bath. Mm-hmm. They're they're releasing Mulan at a loss and there's no way this thing is going to make them money that it needs yeah. to. I think this is the reason why they're sitting on uh, Black Widow. Mm-hmm. They're not, oh, they're they're not going to put no that way. on streaming. Maybe if because, Mulan made bank, they mm-hmm. might have, but no, there's yeah. no fucking way. And I think they know that because yeah, th- here's the thing. Disney Plus is a service that needs content because you could just burn through the content Disney already has on there Mm -hmm. in a few months if you're watching stuff consistently with your kids. I mean, yeah, maybe you couldn't get through all the TV shows and stuff, but Mm -hmm. there might come like a point where you'd ask yourself, is this really worth the money to subscribe every single month Mm -hmm. to Disney Plus? So having this kind of premiere content on there and not like hand-me-downs like Artemis Fowl, which even Disney knew wasn't a draw. Like Disney didn't really bat an eye about releasing it. Disney partly even like advertised that Artemis Fowl was going under yeah, Disney Plus. Yeah. Um, but you know, Mulan is a premium thing. Mulan is come to Disney Plus. So I think what they're justifying this as okay, we're not gonna make as much money as we're not gonna make as much money as we wanted on this, but it will attract even more people to Disney Plus, which is something that they're really committed to. Yeah. So they might see a silver lining there. Because you gotta remember, a lot of these studios, when they make these decisions about you know marketing, release schedules, etc., they're thinking about every single aspect of that release. They're not just thinking about opening weekend, which is how a lot of like people mm-hmm looking at the box office at home are concerned about there they are concerned about the long game and i i i suspect their thought was mulan would be useful for the long haul in disney plus but we'll see how it goes i'm curious if disney will even release their official numbers i'm guessing not yeah they don't have Uh, to but from from what i've been able to read in terms of reading the room and you know reading what paltry box office analyses there have been on Mulan. Yeah. Uh, not a lot of people are, are seeing this one. I think people were a little disillusioned with Mulan, where they said, well, we're going to release it on streaming. Oh, good, I get to see it. But the passion had died down. Yeah. Uh, and it, this is yet another uh, good example and a good analysis as to how the hype machine works and how it needs to be at such a blaring volume to keep excitement high. Yeah. And when there are no films to hype, the the volume is turned way down, and passion for these films starts to wane. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a really, really curious uh, look at the way the ecosystem is kind of degrading around us in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, which, part of me is okay with it, because I never really liked the noise machine. Mm. I, I don't get hyped up for movies, I just want to see them and let you know how they are. And as it turns out, Mulan, no matter what ecosystem it's being released in... It's kind of a boringly written film. That's too bad. Uh, it's such a strong premise. It's a, it's a strong it's, premise. It's it's in, it's inherently cinematic. Mm. There's a lot of good stuff you can do with that. And yeah, it's based on an old Chinese folktale. They yeah. cast uh, all all Chinese actors, which is mm. really great. Yeah, it's epic. Um, it's mm. got like a lot of opportunity for awesome costume design and production mm. design. It's a great sort of. It's not really a mistaken identity story, but you know it's got it's a, it's a, it's secret, got a Shakespeare- secret identity story. Yeah, yeah, it's got a it's got a very classical storytelling bent, mm-hmm. and yeah, mm-hmm. that's the same. I do want to see it, and at some point, if I, uh, you know, my, if I can 
mm. make my budget work for it, or even if I just have to wait till December and just watch it on Disney Plus proper, I will yeah. indeed see it. But yeah, yeah well, I, I, I wish I could have seen yeah, it this well, week. But one more word. Uh, I remember when Aladdin came out, the, uh, the, the were, remake, the remake of the yeah. new Aladdin came out. There was uh, a lot of punditry about how the the casting of this new Aladdin was. Uh, sort of correcting something that had become really inappropriate since where uh, the, when the original Aladdin came out, they cast mostly white actors to play non-white characters. And indeed they drew like Aladdin to look as white as possible. And mm. they drew Jafar to look as not white as possible yeah, yeah. because he's the villain. And there's so a lot they, in uh, that movie that needs to be so they, cross-examined. When they, when they redid it, they cast Persian actors. They cast uh, Middle East actors from all over the Middle East and India, you know, yeah. a- actual non-white White actors, yeah. in these roles, and then they shoved uh, in one white guy, and then they, well, then there's yeah, then there's a white character which they added, and yeah. um, isn't he played by King George from Hamilton? Is it that? No, actor? he looks like him though. Yeah, I know okay. what you're talking about. No, it's not him. Um, but I'm not. I'm wondering how much that representation matters if you're putting it in a whitewashed world mm-hmm. that Disney invented. Yeah. It doesn't take that, that place. That happened in Aladdin. Yeah, it, it, doesn't, looks doesn't, like a, it looks yeah. like a Vegas show version exactly. of if, Aladdin. It doesn't so feel very genuine. I, I, I appreciate that they're getting some actors representation, but how about the actual culture that you've been whitewashing and ripping off to make these very Western fairy tales? Yeah. I yeah, feel, I feel the same way about uh, this new Mulan. It's based on an old Chinese folktale, but it still feels in its story construct very Disney. And I looked mm. up the the screenwriters, and they're all white people. Yeah. So, and, and Nikki Caro is she's part, from New Zealand. She's from New Zealand, uh, but she's not Chinese. Mm-hmm. It would have been nice if there was some, at least, a screenwriter who had a little bit more of an eye for turning this into a more interesting tale rather than just repeating the beats from a 1998 animated film. If you're going to remake it, do whatever you want. It doesn't have to be beat for beat the same. Mm -hmm. And for God's sake, don't include the songs. Luckily they didn't here. I actually kind of like the songs from Mulan, but you don't need them. Actually, a lot of the movie goes by without them. Like Mm. they, they they lift out pretty clearly. Yeah. There's, there's the songs are not in this version. That's, I don't think that's a great tragedy. I don't, it's that I'm not super attached to it. Maybe you could keep some of those themes in the score if you really wanted to. There's little nods here and there. That's nice. That's fine. That's all you need. All right, well, moving on. Uh, there's another really high-profile film that is being released on streaming, or has been this last weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, it is from writer-director Charlie Kaufman. You know Charlie Kaufman uh, for such quirky classics as Being John Malkovich, which he wrote, Eternal Sunshine of a Spotless Mind, which he wrote, Adaptation, which he wrote, Eternal Sunshine of a Spotless Mind, which he wrote. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also wrote and directed uh, the, the acclaimed film Synecdoche, New York, and Anomalisa. Uh, and this is his first film uh, behind the camera in five years. Uh, the film stars Jesse Plemons and Jesse Buckley. No relation. Get it? Okay. Uh, but uh, they are. Uh, Jesse Buckley plays a young woman who is on a road trip with her boyfriend, Jesse Plemons. Mm-hmm. Uh, to visit his parents, and they've been dating for six weeks, and she's already thinking of ending the relationship. And when they get to the farmhouse, uh, his parents are played by the great David Thewlis and the great Tony Collette, 
But at that point, things quickly start to unravel. Reality starts to become fluid. And the movie reveals its secrets, I think, actually very, very quickly. Mm. Uh, But uh, yeah, this is one of those movies in which a person's frame of mind is illustrated in an external way. Mm. uh, And uh, you're not sure for part of the film, possibly, uh, is everything we're seeing literally happening? Is it all in someone's head? If so, whose head? Or are everyone's sort of perceptions and personalities starting to merge Mm. in some particular way? And I really disliked this movie. (laughs) This movie (laughs) drove me up the wall. And I bet Whitney liked it a lot. This is one of my favorite movies of the year. Damn Um, (laughs) I'm thinking of anything as, yeah, it it is this sort of uh, very contemplative meditation on a just a, a very general slew of uh, anxieties mm-hmm. uh, and most notably uh, pessimism thinking of ending things nothing is going to turn out well yeah. here and not in uh, it's based on a, a book which from what I understand is a little bit more like horror bent like it's a little more of a horror book mm-hmm. Look, a little bit creepier yeah. uh, whereas this one is there's a sense of dread but it's not a fearful dread it's more of a, a Ennui. Yeah, ennui. That's a perfect word. Uh, I just feel lost in it. So, yeah, the the main character, I think, is only credited as young woman uh, in Mm. the credits because her name keeps changing. Yeah, when people refer to her, when people call her, her name is different. Her name is a little different. Uh, Every time they refer to her job, her job is different. In one, she's a lawyer. In one, she's a physicist. In one, she's a waitress. And it changes from scene to scene. And you have to be kind of... I remember being a lawyer, actually. I I think they mentioned at one point. Did they mention lawyer? I remember physicist. I remember waitress. I remember poet. Poet. Po- there is, Poet is there. definitely in there. So, but her her actual and profession, painter, painter is in yeah, there. Her actual yeah. profession keeps changing. So her identity is a little bit mutable. When they go to the the parents' house, uh, David Thewlis shows up, and then they cut to another scene where he's sitting down, and all of a sudden he's aged thirty years, mm-hmm. or de-aged thirty or, years. Yeah, the, yeah, the, rather, age, yeah. the ages of of the parents keep changing. And I think what uh, Charlie Kaufman is doing is really capturing a very specific state of mind Mm -hmm. of what it is to be unsure of the world. Uh, And he's doing so with deadly accuracy. There's something really uh, dreamlike and uh, honest about the emotions that he's telling a story about. Really? Because Mm -hmm. I swear to God, I was watching Mm -hmm. this whole movie and... Mm -hmm. I was frustrated by how phony and trite it seemed. Like, I had this complete opposite reaction to you, and I'm absolutely fascinated by this. And I'm frustrated, actually, that we're having this conversation right now Mm. because I feel that so much of the movie is based on a series of revelations, and although I didn't care for this film, I I do acknowledge there's a lot of quality work being done within this. I understand, you know, people wanting to see this and decide for themselves. Mm. So I don't want to spoil it right now. I don't want to go into the details, but... As the story unfolded, what I discovered as I was watching this movie is that I feel like Charlie Kaufman is making a lot of excuses to indulge in cinematic gimmickry. And there's one scene in the movie I think Mm. is actually uh, very, very telling. And uh, 
and I think I think it's the I think it's the excuse. Mm. There there's a scene in the movie where they're talking. They're in a car, Jesse Plemons and Jesse Buckley, mm. and they're talking about a woman under the influence of John Cassavetes' film. Yeah, and she uh, Jesse Buckley starts giving a very long, very well written monologue. Mm. About very, very well written. Hold on. Kale monologue, I was yeah. getting to that. Okay, mm. but my point is, he starts giving this long monologue about why the woman under the influence sucks. Mm. And it, if you know the works of Pauline Kale, you will either recognize the review or you'll recognize Pauline Kale's writing style because it's very different from the rest of the movie. Well, and, and her re- she like kind of changes character yep. in that scene too. Her reading she, becomes very different. Yeah, yeah, she actually does like kind of like a Pauline Kale kind of performance, and. She goes through this litany of really, you know, reasonable, harsh, but reasonable critiques of a film. And then Jesse Plemons just sort of mawkishly just says, well, I just sort of was captivated by how sympathetic the filmmakers were to the characters. Mm. And I'm just like, so you've just written in the excuse for your film right here. And here's the thing that bugs me about it. I think Charlie Kaufman doesn't have sympathy for all of these characters. And especially, I don't see a lot of sympathy for Jesse Buckley. I think Mm. the movie is conceived and structured and written in such a way Mm. that her character has to be, like, frustratingly inconsistent throughout the entire narrative. In order for the the narrative to make sense, I mm. acknowledge this. But ultimately, I feel like it's just an excuse to tell a story about male problems, male psyches Mm. through the use of a female protagonist who only exists to be a filter through that. And you can see Mm. a lot of the a lot of the dialogue that she has, all the storytelling that she has, is very specifically, ultimately not Mm. about her. It is about other people. And I noticed this, this is an interesting double feature with Anomalisa, because that's another Mm. one about a man who's perception of the world he he sees everyone in the world as having the exact same voice Mm. and then he finally meets a woman who has her own voice and he is completely captivated by her and he's going to throw his entire life away in order to be with this completely random stranger who he's met and then he realizes that the problem is she's going to become boring too Mm. and you realize that here's a movie about a man who is using this woman as a prop in some way and i feel like jesse buckley even though she's front and center in the narrative i feel like the movie uses her that way Mm -hmm. and yet she's the protagonist and that frustrates the hell out of me because i feel that she is trying really hard to make really complicated and interesting scenes and ideas work but the movie is fighting against her because i don't feel like the movie cares about her as much as it does about other things and it pissed me off well but why i mean that's true of any film that any screenwriter any filmmaker is using their characters as ciphers for themselves and uh-huh. I feel like all of the characters, but we've all, are now we can all know there are badly written characters, though, right? I mean, come uh, on, that doesn't mean every um, every character who is written in a way know, that turns what, us off is is therefore perfect because the writer was using them for some purpose. Th- th- this is sort of a surrealist film, though. All uh-huh. of the characters are ciphers or symbols of some kind. Yeah, but it's so. A, why it's does it very, bother you that it's also the protagonist is also that? Way? It bothers me because she because ultimately she doesn't mm. come across as the actual point of reference for the film. I well, feel as though the by po- the end of the film, she's very uh, clearly uh, not. Uh, I'm trying not to mm. go into too many details, but my mm. point is, my point is she's still our focal point. Mm. And as a result, the emphasis of the movie is, I feel 
in kind of the wrong place because we are supposed to be here with her on her journey. It is her. It's kind of like the issue I had with the lodge, where mm. the idea is we're inside this woman's head. Yeah. Uh, but the movie doesn't want us to sympathize with them. The movie isn't mm. about sympathizing with her at that moment. The movie in the lodge is asking us to be scared of her at a time when the actual narrative is playing out in such a way that she is now evoking all of our sympathy. Mm. This isn't the exact same thing, but here they're trying to evoke our sympathy, but ultimately she ends up feeling more like a cipher mm. than a complex human being, which is how they are presented for so much of the film. And pulling the rug out isn't some really wonderful revelation. It's actually taking this person who seemed really complicated and revealing that they are actually very shallow and trite. And that bothers me. Does I the, ultimately the feel character is shallow and I think be, I, yes, actually, mm. I do. I think the character is. I think the function that they serve in the narrative mm. ultimately is a whole lot of complicated gimmickry. A whole lot. They shout out to do. They do whole scenes from Oklahoma mm. and other stuff. I won't ruin for you, but like Oklahoma is pretty obvious from the get go. But there's they they just copy. Moments from other mm. literature. I already mentioned the Pauline Kale scene, and it just feels like this is an attempt to make the story more seem more intelligent than it actually is. Because mm. actually, when you boil it right down, at the end of this movie, there isn't much of a mystery. It is clear what happened here. That doesn't feel surrealist to me. It actually feels kind of thuddingly obvious. And as a result, I didn't feel like I got anywhere out of this. I felt like this is a whole lot of effort and uh, uh, sort of overwriting if if that if that is such a word they're trying to take this really straightforward concept and try to make it seem important and meaningful by writing it really a lot and i don't know i rejected it my brain just couldn't get into this movie uh, I, I think it's because it is celebrating something you perhaps don't like to see in movies and that is uh a, a, a there's a They Might Be Giants lyric that says, no one in the world ever gets what they want. And that is beautiful. Yeah. Everybody dies frustrated and sad, and that is beautiful. Yes. And I think that's... I don't find that profound, though. I think that's really straightforward. Uh, but I think it is something that's very intrinsic to us as humans, or at least it's intrinsic to somebody like Charlie Kaufman, who is mm-hmm. a very pessimistic and self-pitying person. Uh-huh. It's been evident in all of his screenplays. The, the thing about Charlie Kaufman is he's had the luck of hooking up with some rather quirky directors. Mm. Spike Jones has done two of his movies and Spike Jones is really kind of rolling with a lot of the fun weird fun elements of his weird screenplays. Yeah. Uh when he uh Michel Gondry did Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Line and, Michel, and Human Nature. And, that's right, and also Human Nature and these are uh yeah, these really kind of bright, uh, cheerful, quirky kind of movies because of the director. Mm-hmm. But you look at those screenplays, and they're actually very dour. Yeah, and so I think, when it's, true you look for, at, I think it's true for Confessions of a oh. Dangerous Mind as well. I think mm. Clooney actually treats the material very literally. Yeah, and yeah. I think the material is actually very melancholy about whether or not we can even assume mm. that this reality of a game show host who claims he was also a CIA assassin mm. was true. There's something pathetic about it. Yeah. But the, in fact, the I think I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but the last line of dialogue in that movie is uh, here's a pitch for a game show it's called the old show a bunch of old guys are brought out on stage to justify their existence 
the loser shoots himself through the head. The winner gets a washing machine. Uh, so, yeah, you know, th- this is not... That's melancholy. That's, that's yeah, really, yeah. It's rather melancholy. Yeah. And, and I appreciate uh, Charlie Kaufman's form of melancholy and his... Uh, dour comments on the way so many films are kind of bright and empty and in fact he kind of spoofs a uh, romantic comedy in, in, <laughs> in, within the film there's, where there's, the, there's, a, there's a bit in this movie where all of a sudden you see like a credit from a movie and it mm. got a huge guffaw from me yeah, yeah, like, yeah. which is so, like really just, just it just Smash cut to this one thing. I laughed my butt off. I'm not going to lie. That was a great moment. What I think Charlie Kaufman is doing is elaborating on a philosophy he has about the the power of sadness and the unshakable self-pity that he's ashamed of. If you've seen Synecdoche in New York, Mm. he understands that he thinks about himself a lot and he pities himself a lot and sees himself as this pathetic character Mm -hmm. and he feels terrible about it. Right. And as such, he's now writing a film where all of the characters, not just the protagonist, but every single one of them, is a filter through which he can himself kind of start to ponder how pathetic mortality really is. And if it was about mortality, mm. I might agree with you, but you said it yourself. Oh, mm, he's, he's 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 neurotic to the mm. point here, I think. Okay. Not in everything he's ever done. I actually haven't seen Synecdoche in New York, but I've seen a lot mm. of his other stuff. In fact, I think I've seen all of his other stuff. I, I feel like this is neurotic to the point of navel-gazing. I think this is neurotic to the point of... Like, just, there's a word that a lot of people use, and I think they use it inaccurately. Mm. Pretentious. Mm. And most people seem to use pretentious as synonymous with snobbish, hoity-toity. And it can be that way, but pretentious isn't inherently negative. Pretentious just means that you make an assumption that your audience is as aware of the material as you are. Mm. Uh, you've made the argument that there is perhaps no more pretentious movie than Avengers: Infinity War, because you you need to have you need to have a lot of working knowledge yeah. to even understand a lot of. If that. you haven't seen yeah. all like whatever it was like twenty one Marvel Cinematic Universe movies, you can probably follow along, but you won't get it. You won't appreciate the dramatic beats. They won't mean anything to you. Mm. It'll be kind of academic. That's pretension. Is it still a good movie? Arguably, yes, but it is pretentious. The pretension on display. And I'm thinking of ending things is the kind of pretension that I think is actually the absolute like worst kind. Because if you understand the references to, say, Oklahoma or a big movie that they reference at the end, mm-hmm. uh, the movie ends up feeling not poignant, but really rather laughable to me. And I feel as though if you didn't understand those references, those sequences would seem so surreal and strange mm. that maybe you'd be willing to give the movie more credit for genius. And there's something about just using those references, using that iconography, just to goose what is ultimately an incredibly straightforward premise in the end. You, you talk about it, his philosophy. I just find his philosophy uncomplicated. And mm. I feel as though the way that this movie explores that philosophy is just trying to take something relatively straightforward, these relatively straightforward anxieties mm. about relationships, about pessimism, about mortality, and make them so complicated to present that they seem complicated 
in their construct. And I'm never convinced that that's true based on the movie that he crafted. Uh, I, I appreciated the mystery that he's pushing us into. Were you, is I it think, really a mystery that you really... I'm kind of curious because I thought it I picked felt, up on it like in the first few minutes. Well, it, it felt very... It's a mystery in the way a David Lynch film is a mystery and that everything feels kind of mysterious. It's not that something is going to be revealed later on to you know unlock the secrets of this movie. But, but, but that I is feel, kind of the way the movie plays out, though. Unlike David mm-hmm. Lynch, where he will leave Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive... Well, I guess Mulholland Drive is actually a bad example because that one does well, kind of I, I think it, itself I, up. But. I think it does uh, end on a little bit of an ambiguous note. It, it does... Uh, from what I understand, the book is a lot more clear as to like mm. the points of view and what a lot of the characters mean. Yeah, uh, like what actually happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a little bit more clearly than that. I, I like that the film is a little bit more mysterious, and we do get a good... Uh, more than anything, also like in a David Lynch film, we're getting a really good, very accurate portrayal of an emotional state rather than of a character or of an arc or even of a theme. It's mm. more uh, how how much it honestly puts forth a very specific kind of very real human fear. And that is very appealing to me. I, Being I able to that. understand that and communicate a story using emotions mm-hmm. rather than dialogue and relying on things that might seem really bizarre on the surface to actually be a little bit more direct about how you're feeling. I feel the same way about Eraserhead. Eraserhead is a very strange film. Mm-hmm. It's not straight. You can't really follow it in a story sense. No, it doesn't, it it doesn't work literally. Yet. But, the, but right, the emotions are it, very. But, it, but real. while, while yeah. you're watching it, you're horrified. Right. Not just by the imagery, but just by the general feeling as to what's going on. And this is, and this I think is is oh. brings me back around to my issue. I feel that Jesse Buckley's character, and again, I think she's doing really wonderful things in the movie. Okay. But I think Jesse Buckley's character has to live in a state of confusion mm. for so long that her emotions cease to become clear and the emotions that ultimately the movie reveals itself to be actually about mm. end up obfuscated and less interesting and by the time we find them out we realize that they were ultimately very simple and that for me but isn't so much universal mm. as it is just trite or true to life, because we spend a lot of time trying to unlock our own emotional states, and yeah. often find that the solutions are easier than we think. I th- and I totally agree with that, except I think that I've seen in real life and in other movies this same sort of emotional state, narrative, if you will, mm. moment of a life that is being explored through drama, done in a more impactful and nuanced and thematically rich way. I ultimately found this movie to be a whole lot of surface elements Mm. that are just sort of ladled on top of a pretty simple, straightforward concept. And that's not the end of the world, but those things that are ladled on top of it are like, why did you put raisins in that? This is a savory dish. (laughs) We don't need the raisins. I know you think you're interesting because you put Mm. raisins in this, but the raisins aren't helping me here. Oh, I'm, I'm so fr- I'm so frustrated. I'm so I'm frustrated so because I, I I feel like there's there's something here that I think I thought you would really get your fingernails underneath, and, oh. and you're just. I see. Listen, I'm a de- listen. I'm I've wrestled with mental illness mm. on a daily basis. I've I'm, I have depression. I have anxiety. I have other things. It's it's sucks. Mm-hmm. Mental illness is is not easy, and a lot of people deal with it. And there's a lot of really excellent movies that deal with it. 
I think there are moments in this movie that capture parts of it, but I ultimately feel as though so much of it is contrived around presentation as opposed to actually exploring the real depths of these things. And I feel like once you start thinking about the presentation of this film and you realize it's a puzzle box structure, mm-hmm. you realize that the puzzle box is kind of... Mm, it feels like Charlie Kaufman is more interested in the puzzle box than he is in anything else because everything mm. else is presented pretty clearly and I don't think there's a lot necessarily to explore there that isn't explored pretty well, quickly. This is a film that I felt like I kind of needed to see. It was really okay. refreshing wow. to see this point of view. It's a kind of film I think I'm going to want to watch a couple more times uh-huh. to just sort of live in this strange sad world that he's constructed and to get to know it a little better and maybe figure out its mysteries a little bit better. We usually, I I find (laughs) that you and I usually are more or less on the same page about a lot of things. And when we're not on the same page about something, it's usually something that is maybe more mainstream. Mm. Like I liked winter soldier more than you did that kind of bullshit. Whatevs. I, I I feel bad that this movie connected with you so strongly and mm. I had such a negative reaction to it. And I want, because I've gone on such a rant about it, mm-hmm. I want to, before we move on, I want you to take the last word on this and speak <laughs> as long as you want. I, people have heard what uh, I have to yeah. say and I tried to say it as clearly as I could without dipping into the actual spoilers of it. Mm. But Whitney loved it and I feel like I dominated the conversation mm. a lot. So please have the last word on this. I won't oh. even rebut at the end. Fair enough. I, I guess I'll say this. Uh, sometimes when you wake up in the morning, you don't feel good about the state of the world. You feel like things are a little bit out of your control and that there's not a lot of hope. And a lot of people will use a film uh, as a salve, kind of make the film work for them. Uh, watch a happy film to cheer them up, to undo that sadness. Often, it's even more gratifying to find a film that looks you in the eye and says, you're right. There's not hope here. There's a lot of fear in the world, and that's actually just part of you. And to have that kind of cold handshake can be more comforting than anything else. And that's the sort of cold comfort that I'm thinking of anything's offered me. Uh, Speaking of cold comfort (laughs) and fear and anxiety and depression and other things that make you feel miserable... Let's move on to Love Guaranteed. Oh, Love Guaranteed. A, totally different film. A miserable piece of shit from Mark Steven Johnson. Oh. <laughs> okay. It's, 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 I think it's a little bit more harmless than you're giving okay, credit for. It's not a miserable piece of shit, but it is a bad film. I, I, I agree this is not a good film. I, I didn't have the visceral reaction you had against it, but it, I, it's, it's not a good film. It's not a good film. Right. This is the latest film from Mark Stephen Johnson, who is probably best known uh, for directing the films Daredevil and the original Ghost Rider. Mm. Ghost Rider in particular is a, is quite a bad film. Daredevil, think, uh, the director's cut has some fans. It's definitely better than mm. the theatrical cut, but it's not a great film. As it turns out, Mark Stephen Johnson, uh, his filmography has more ro- romances and romantic comedies in it. Yeah, it was actually kind of uh, uh, casting him against type to direct those movies. In fact, he actually had to really fight for those. Um, 
so Daredevil and Ghost Rider. Uh, yeah, go, Daredevil. Daredevil was a passion thing for him, and he really fought really, really hard. He wrote the screenplay, and he fought really, really hard to be able to direct it. Uh, say what you will about how it turned out, but he I know really pushed for it. I know it's not loved. I think it's better than its reputation, and, and, and that's fair. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, Mark Stephen Johnson, in addition to uh, uh, directing those films, he also wrote uh, the gr- Grumpy Old Men, which is actually a bit of a comedy classic. I think it's at least the last great Jack Lemmon Walter Matthau pairing. Grumpy Er Old Man is also fine, but the original Grumpy Old Man is quite good. I saw neither of them. Oh, so it's something I have to catch up on. Grumpy Old Man is is it's exactly what it sounds like. Walter Matthau and Jack Lemon are grumpy neighbors who hate each other, and, and they they, they, they and Margaret right? Yeah, yeah. and Margaret moves into town, and they both want to date her, and that leads to an escalation of their feud, but eventually an understanding, and you know it's cute. It's really cute. It's funny. It works. Grumpy er old men is basically the same thing, except Sophia Loren comes into town. <laughs> I don't care. It, it's it's repetitive, but also kind of charming. We're gonna Claudia Cardinale in there. Uh, he also wrote the screenplay for a. a I haven't seen this in a long time, but I remember actually liking this more than most people. A Rick Moranis Tom Arnold movie called Big Bully. About a guy who moves back into his old hometown and takes a job teaching at a high school, only to find out that his old high school bully is also teaching at that high school, and the the, the dynamic, di- the dynamic is, resumes. Yeah. I remember thinking it was actually a pretty good dark comedy, okay. and I think it was pitched as a light comedy, and I think that's one of the reasons why it didn't find an audience, but that was actually pretty good. Uh, he also uh, was one of the writers of Jack Frost. Not, not, not the good Jack Frost. No, <laughs> even the good Jack Frost is not a good film. No, the good Jack Frost sucks. The good Jack Frost is the slasher movie about a killer snowman. It's really bad, mm. but at least it is kind of entertainingly bad. The Michael Keaton family movie Jack Frost is almost unwatchable. It's so, it's such a bad film. But Mark Stephen Johnson is ba- he did When in Rome, and mm-hmm. now he's back to do another romantic comedy. This time it's Love Guaranteed, and this stars Rachel Lee Cook. Who, when was the last time you saw her? She was big yeah, I think, I think in like the late nineties, and the then last she just movie kinda... I saw her in was like Nancy Drew. It's been a while since oh, I've she seen Rachel. That? Yeah, oh yeah, that's cool. She's, she's a. The one who hires Nancy Drew. Rachel Lee Cook will probably always be a minor cinematic legend because She's All That was like a really huge teen rom-com that actually helped inspire a huge resurgence of the rom-com genre in the late 90s focused on teens. I, I I never saw She's All That, but I did see Josie and the Pussycats. Oh, there you go. She was Josie. I've actually never seen oh, Josie okay. and the Pussycats, but I did see She's All That. It's very formulaic, but she's good in it. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, oh, yeah, she plays, she had... in Love Guaranteed, she plays a lawyer, and uh, she ends up uh, becoming, she's, she's enlisted by Damon Wayans Jr., uh, who's a very talented actor, I find, uh, to sue a dating service called Love Guaranteed. And his argument is, I tried their dating service, I went on a thousand dates, and I did not find love. That is false advertising. Or rather, he's zeroing in on a thousand dates, and he's Mm. getting the the lawsuit ready for when he doesn't find love on Mm -hmm. his thousandth date. Which already is shooting holes in his whole Mm. thing. Here's the thing here. The thing that I actually like about this movie, Mm. more than anything else, is, you know, I've never been to law school. Obviously, I do film podcasts. If I was a lawyer, I would <laughs> I would have other ways to spend my time. Um, but I, I could afford to see Mulan. <laughs> but um, for example, you look at the movie like Legally Blonde, where there you see a you see a, a law school, and one of the things that they talk about in law school is here are all these cases. Some of them are probably real. Maybe some of them are made up or whatever, just to sort of test your acumen. Like, what is the case here? What are the pitfalls in this case? Why would you win this case? Why would you lose this case? Mm. 
I was sort of wrapped up in trying to figure out how this case could possibly be winnable. <laughs> because y- you're right. He hasn't gone through the thousand dates yet, but he's already planning the lawsuit. Mm. If the opposition finds out about that, it already yes, looks like yes. he's just doing this to get money off of a claim. And you can claim that those last like 14 dates or whatever it was were not done in good faith. Also, this seems like a, a civil case, not a. But there's a jury trial at the end. I'm not exactly sure how the there law is a jury works. trial. Yeah, like I'm, it's kind of sure weird why, why there is a jury trial here. You'd think it would be like a a really boring gray room, like you'd Probably. see in marriage story. Well, the, the movies play it really fast and loose with how like trials work and or human interaction. There's actually a, I can't remember what it's called. <laughs> there's actually like a YouTube channel in which an actual like lawyer just watches uh, law movies. I think it's just called like uh, Blank Gets Lawyer. Is, yeah. Is, is the, so like, the so like, and they'll watch something like my cousin Vinny or the Rainmaker or whatever, and they'll tell you this is not what actually happens in a trial. If this happened in a trial, there would be a mistrial. Or sometimes, hey, that's actually pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, that that guy did a really wonderful episode on Measure of a Man, the Star Trek: The Next Generation episode. I saw that one. Where that they put one, yeah. data on trial, and it's like, yeah. okay, we're dealing with robots, but all right, we're good. I, I, but he's but what he was doing there is he was just saying what is a good argument mm. to to be making here, and I was. thinking Thinking along the lines of that guy, as I was watching this movie, I'm like, what is going to hurt their case and what can actually help their case? And one of the things that comes up is because the protagonists of this film are a lawyer and her client and they're suing this dating site because he couldn't find love via the site. If they fall in love, is the lawsuit null and void? It is. In fact, they bring that up in dialogue. They bring that up in dialogue, but then you realize that that should not be cut and dry because that clearly is not the website as intended. Hmm. Because if you start following that to its logical conclusion, like, well, listen, if I fell in love with my lawyer because I sued the website, technically the website worked. So everyone's got a plan to sue the website and fall in love with their lawyer? That's not... You can't take credit gets, for that. You can't take credit for, like, six degrees of separation on this. It's uh, got to be it, through the site. If, if you're a lawyer and... If you're a defense lawyer, you'd bring that up. Exactly. That so I'm sort of uh, fascinated by this as a logical problem. As a rom-com, it doesn't work. I was about to say, if you're thinking about all of these logical legal problems while you're watching this movie, clearly the film is failing, because you're supposed to be <laughs> charmed by uh, Damon Wayans Jr. and Rachel Lee Cook falling in love. Rachel mm-hmm. Lee Cook is... A workaholic in dialogue only. She actually seems pretty relaxed and put together mm. as things go. She has uh, a lot of time to like sit on, like not on her couch, but on like mm. the top of her couch and like cozy up with a warm mug of cocoa mm. and look outside a window while it's raining in Seattle mm. wistfully. I'm like, I haven't yeah. had time to do that. <laughs> I lost work this year. <laughs> I don't have time to do that. What the hell are you doing that? Everything is just so bright and even and bland and cliched that even the meat cute is boring where they mix up their coffee oh. orders. And, and like, then they start oh, like God. walking down the street and they realize they're walking into the same place. Mm. And I actually have written scenes like that when I've written the screenplays. And even I knew when I was writing them, this is shit. I need to rewrite this whole thing. <laughs> this is just yeah, getting me to is... the next scene and I'll rewrite this later. I'm writing a big red line I've, through every, it. Every scene feels like just getting to the next scene. I this one so much uh in fact i was watching this it's so artificial i kind of half expected the camera to pull back and we see like the bank of uh like puppet masters like in the cabin in the woods <laughs> like manipulating the characters on screen to behave a certain way if they don't like, fall in love the world is doomed yeah something like that Wait, wasn't there a, there was a john travolta movie like that was there with Olivia Newton John in which um um Oliver Reed played the devil and the whole point is if 
John Travolta, who tried to rob a bank, mm-hmm. and Olivia Newton-John, who worked at that bank, if they don't fall in love, the apocalypse happens. <laughs> Hold on, I need to look this oh, up. This God. is a real movie. I swear to God, this is a real movie. <laughs> I have not seen this movie. I, I need. I need. Hold on. I, I, it's got a. If memory serves, it's got a generic name, so it's not like helping me here. I'm totally looking this up. This is driving me bananas. Uh, <laughs> let's see here. Olivia Newton-John, oh, I mean, early '80s. I'll, I'll, I'll let you look that up. And Two of we, a kind. Two of a kind. Yep. That sounds awful. Two of a kind. When God, this is the IMDb thing. When God decides to destroy Earth, four angels aim to redeem mankind through a young man and woman with their own troubles. It's quite bad. Um, (laughs) But at least my point is, it's a it's a concept that has been tested, and we can do it again. Well, uh, that's what they should have done with Love Guaranteed. (laughs) What they didn't do with Love Guaranteed was that. What they did was nothing. They just had these people kind of sleepwalk through. There's uh, some pretty perfunctory scenes where Rachel Lee Cook decides to go on a few uh, misguided dates herself to test out this dating app. Mm. By the way, which is owned by Gwyneth Paltrow, played by Heather Graham. Who is the Uh, best part of this movie? Yeah. She actually has... She's actually bringing something to the role. She actually has some good laugh lines. She's clearly playing Gwyneth Paltrow as the guru leader of Goop. Mm. And she's playing it up in every conceivable way to the extent that you wonder why she wasn't the star of the film. Should have been about her and somebody bringing a case to her. Or yeah. maybe the lawyer. I don't care. But what is Heather Graham's really talented? And not that <laughs> Rachel Lee Cook isn't, but she's clearly being asked to do something real generic. So when Heather Graham comes in and is allowed to vamp it up a little, it's a breath of fresh air. Hmm. There's this cute bit in the in the uh, uh, in the in the trial where like her lawyer, who's obviously a shitty lawyer. Uh, does something she doesn't like, and she punches him in the middle of like punches him in the arm like really hard. Mm. He goes, "Ow! Why did you do that?" And she says, "Because you like it." <laughs> and there's a pause, <laughs> and he has to think about it, and then he meekly says, "He, he meekly says like, no, I mm. don't." <laughs> and I'm like, "More of them, please! This is gold. This is the good stuff." Um, this movie was written. Uh, by screenwriters I actually kind of like and I want to give them a little shout out because I've liked stuff that they've done before it's uh, Elizabeth Hackett and Hillary Galanoy. Uh, and they've done a lot uh, of... A, another Hackett and Galanoy joint. <laughs> ah, that, I would love it if that was actually a thing. Uh, but they've done a lot of uh, straight-to-TV uh, or straight-to-Netflix mm-hmm. rom-coms that are better than you'd think. Maybe they're not great, but you if you watch like they did a Hallmark one, for example, that was called um Um Oh wait, I think only one of them did the Hallmark one. Hang on. Let me let me do I have the right person here? <laughs> no, because like they, they wrote together, but I think they've written some stuff separately. Mm-hmm. Um oh uh Oh Christmas Tree, is that what it's called? <laughs> I, you know okay, what? it was released under the title Fur Crazy. This is All why right. I was confused. Yeah. Fur Crazy, F I R Crazy, and it's about a woman who like inherits her family's Christmas tree farm and finds love. It's actually very charming. It has Colin Mockery in it. Like it's actually like okay. it's actually like better than that almost always is. It's upper echelon hallmark. Uh, and they also did Falling in Love, which we reviewed last year, oh, which no. is which was perfectly milk toast. Mm. Just milk toast mm. all the way. Nothing okay. that'll challenge your palate. Shred- it just it just the sits there. Wheat biscuits soaking in water. Yeah, it is. It has a lot of fiber. 
but that's all it's got. It's a, <laughs> Nothing. No, no taste, no real nutrients. That movie's not even <laughs> But it'll roughage. go down. That's just like a spoonful of flour. It'll go down, is my point. <laughs> anyway, listen, I actually think that they're actually pretty good, generally, mm. at taking a pretty straightforward setup for a romantic comedy, creating a decent structure for it, mm. and just giving the people who make the movie... Very few opportunities to screw up. You get a good cast, you get a competent director, you will get exactly what the audience for this film is looking for. Mm. And the problem with Love Guaranteed, it actually isn't the cast. I think Rachel Lee Cook is good. At, at least she's doing her best. I think Damon Wayans Jr. is good. Mm-hmm. Um, Heather Graham is really good. But the concept isn't doesn't work here. Because the concept is so full of holes... The concept is illogical a lot of the time, mm-hmm. and people keep bringing up different, like, sort of ideas, solutions, problems that don't make any sense. For a rom-com, you want a setup that's clean. Mm. You want it to have like a lot of opportunities for misunderstandings and mix-ups and all that kind of stuff, but you don't want the premise to be confusing and sort of fall apart like a tower of playing cards Mm. if you poke at it too hard. And here, I see where this is a good idea, but the way that they actually play out all the trial stuff is so just flimsy that the whole thing falls apart. Like, I can't even enjoy this as Pablum. Which I wanted Pablum! (laughs) I was in the mood for Pablum! I mean, the name uh, of my first album, In the Mood for Pablum. I got to review this with uh, Amy Nicholson on KCRW. And she said this was like a tall glass of iced tea. It worked for her. She liked she ah. likes the Pablum. And, uh, I, I often I, I do. Could, I can only say, uh, just to, I know it's poor form to repeat yourself, but I'll do it anyway. Um, I said if this was a glass of iced tea, mine had a bug in it. Yeah. This, this is just not <laughs> a, a nice, bland chunk of yucky nothing. Look, I think I think if anyone has followed me, us, mm. this podcast long enough, you'll know that I can be very forgiving mm. for genre films if they hit the mark. Yeah. You know, they're not. This this movie is clearly not trying to be the greatest rom com ever. This movie is trying to be charming. And disposable, mm. and unfortunately, it's they, one of those things. <laughs> it, it, it's it's it is disposable, mm. and it is briefly charming because I think the cast is actually not a bad cast. Mm. But yeah, it just it doesn't function. It's got one job, and it made its job too hard, mm. and they just couldn't meet that. Yeah. They couldn't meet that standard of we set up an, uh, an interesting legal problem, but we actually have nothing interesting to do with it. Mm-hmm. And they, they should have simplified it way down. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. that I think they just made it too big, mm-hmm. made it too complicated, mm-hmm. and it should have been way simpler than that. And cut out the cliched side characters like mm-hmm. the the loveless spinster and the gay best friend, yeah. who was old when Strom Thurmond was born. It's just <laughs> let's let's not do that yeah. anymore. No, it was that it was mm-hmm. all very tedious. Mm-hmm. Um, so a bit of a shame because I was. Totally, it's the kind of movie I can be very forgiving about, yeah. but this one did not work, and that's that stinks. Um, and I feel bad because you saw so many more movies than I did this mm-hmm. week. So why don't we try to get through as quickly as possible? We'll giving you all the time you want, of course. <laughs> well, thank you. But like you know, let's let's not take an hour on here. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's talk about the other three films. Tell me about the Andorra Hustle. Uh, the Andorra Hustle is a new documentary film about a bank in Andorra. 
the country of Andorra, which is a little, little tiny principality that's in between France and Spain. They give you a, a little bit of history of the country of Andorra going in because they understand that Americans might not know about Andorra how uh, and how it has a really unusual political structure, how it is sort of a co-protectorate of both France and Spain, but also has its own government. And uh, Andorra is very famous because they are, they're famous for their banking. Uh, mostly because a lot of money laundering goes on there, and a lot of criminal enterprises and corrupt governments like to launder their money. This is about one of those banks, in fact, the only honest one, the mm. one that wasn't laundering money, and how it was more or less, the bank was more or less assassinated by uh, the powers that be, and nobody wow. really knew why. Uh, the this film is very Wikipedia century. There's a lot of just exposition explaining it because this is about financial crime. And the whole deal with financial crime is it's so complicated that the bad guys can get away with it, right? Yeah. They can hide everything they need to in red tape. Uh, as such, this is a film that only seeks to unbind that red tape and make things a little clearer. And luckily it does it. So I'm going to try to give you the short version as best I can. Okay. There's a statute within the USA Patriot Act, I believe that allows uh, the United States to interfere in any international bank if they're payrolling terrorists. Mm. And there's this like certain like law they can execute in order to to crack down on a bank. Yeah. And they crack down on this one bank and as it turns out even though all the banks in the vicinity were indeed guilty of laundering money and sent, you know, giving all these huge cash payments to cor- corrupt politicians and criminals all over the world, this one this wasn't. one wasn't. Even though they kept on uh, the people around it, uh, around the bank, and politicians and local politicians were using this bank as a symbol as to how corrupt things could really get, and they started finding all of these connections to revolutionaries in Venezuela, wow. and yeah, some of some of like uh, uh, some other terrorists here and there, and uh, we learn very slow. We get to talk to the people who were involved in this and how they were just pilloried and attacked and arrested for doing all of these financial crimes when they themselves are just sort of trying to run their bank as best as they can. Yeah. And how it all ended up boiling down to this weird political rivalry between mainland Spain and uh, the the Catalan independence movement. Mm. How there's a, a, a province in Spain that's seeking independence from the rest of Spain. And how much bad blood and animosity has gone on historically between those two groups. And how right. somehow it all came, like, was connected back to this bank. Uh I love these kinds of movies that try to make this clear for me. Mm-hmm. That Because I, I appreciate clarity and everything is such a mess. A lot of criminals depend on you not knowing stuff and knowing what a messy system it is mm-hmm. to get away with a lot of this stuff. Yeah. And if, if you start pulling on a thread, well, it turns out you're going to unravel the whole world. And I think something like the Andorra Hustle is at least yanking on a thread a little bit. I appreciate it. It's dry as fuck. It's uh. actually not hugely entertaining to watch. It's more informative, but films can be informative, and I think that's mm-hmm. a good function. Yeah, I've, I've come mm. around to this because, like, I, I've, I've said it before, documentaries aren't, like, my top genre. I don't mm. always seek them out, and uh, I probably have more holes in my, like, film watching and documentaries than any other genre. Mm. Um but one of the things that I was frustrated about is I always have this tendency to want to see a documentary as <laughs> some sort of narrative. Uh, mm-hmm. But at the same time, I find when you try to turn a documentary into a narrative, there always feels like there's some falsehood to it. But 
increasingly I'm becoming appreciative of documentaries that, you know, aren't necessarily built like a movie movie. Yeah, they're not, and they're they're not just all trying, narratives, they're yeah. just information. Sometimes, you know? sometimes it's just about the effective conveyance of information in a way that is clear and engaging enough to get you through it, and at the end, you might not necessarily feel like, wow, what a journey I've been on. You might just say to yourself, ah, I know more. Yeah. I don't know why this wasn't presented to me as something documentaries could be long ago. Like, <laughs> I don't know why this is... Documentary, it's in the name, the, they're documenting the, something. The, the documentaries that were presented to me when I was really discovering film mm-hmm. uh, were the ones that were considered to sort of explode the medium, and I don't think I was getting enough of the baseline to fully appreciate them. Okay. And the older I get, the more I appreciate the, how much I've missed, and I've been trying to go back and, and fix that. Okay. So I, my point is, is this, I can totally be forgiving about a documentary that just tells me something interesting and gets the fuck out. Uh, hmm. is, is it boring though? Because you said it's kind of no, it's it's okay. it's gripping, but okay. it's it's not like entertaining. Like the big emotional okay. reveals aren't the what you're what's hinging on this. It's okay. just the information you're getting, and you could probably get a, sim- a similar thrill from reading an article. But this is just a visual article, okay. and I have nothing. I have no problems with visual articles if they're presented okay. well. All right, how does this compare to the other documentary you saw this week? Uh, the other documentary I saw this week was Feels Good Man, and boy, howdy, is this intriguing? I this uh, was I remember hearing about. This this and all the weird stuff that went around behind it and this is a weird story yeah this, this is a well and this is a story you probably know about uh this is a documentary about matt fury matt fury is a cartoonist who uh conceived of the character pepe the frog and this traces the origin of pepe the frog in a, a little uh, comic strip that he was doing uh i think it's called boys town it was just about some post-college animal people just sort of hanging out and having a good time and yeah very it's very peaceful non-eventful kind of comic strip and uh how pepe the frog somehow made its way into meme culture which was something that matt fury didn't have any familiar with mm-hmm. familiarity with oh, people most uh, a lot yeah. of people didn't until the last like 10 20 yeah, yeah. years and or so when it really exploded th- this idea that uh an image or a piece of art or, or a little clip can be used to express various emotions as a pictogram yeah uh it filtered its way down into 4chan which is kind of the gutter of the internet and 4chan, uh, they they explain in the film, was sort of this haven for a lot of people who felt like outsiders, and Pepe the Frog was a good way to put a face to a lot of their emotions. Mm. And a lot of 4chan was about these people who felt like outsiders, and they decided to make it uh, sort of their own place by messing up the room. It's like they're they're gonna make keep the room messy in the way they like it essentially. Yeah. Uh, so if uh, an outsider would come in, they'd just see what a mess it is and they'd leave. As such, they started using Pepe the Frog for some really shocking humor. They'd have Holocaust jokes and Nazi imagery and racism jokes all folded into Pepe the Frog. And at some point along the line in this narrative. The irony fell away, and Pepe the Frog became an officially co-opted symbol of the alt-right. To the extent that uh, around the time of the 2016 election, Mm. when you started seeing Pepe the Frog everywhere on social media, often by people who were uh, supporting Trump, for Mm. example, um, they actually ended up officially declaring Pepe the Frog, this Mm. guy's just generally, just this generic 
cartoon creation, just some cartoon. Well, not guy. generic. It's got per- personality. Well, you know what I mean. Like yeah. my point. Okay, well, generic is the bad word. This this guy is uh, innocuous. Innocuous. Yeah. Innocuous is the word I'm looking for. I- innocuous cartoon creation became because it was co opted by so many people and because it went through all these weird permutations. Officially codified a hate symbol mm. like the swastika. That's, it's it's in a database now. Pepe the yeah. Frog is in a database of hate symbols, and that's so fucking weird to imagine that some you just drew a comic strip. And he didn't even. Who knows if it would even ever go anywhere? And then some years later, it's people have turned it into something hateful. Yeah, he's he's just, and he's just a, a a really Matt Fury is just this really sweet laid back guy who is what became increasingly horrified by how his creation was being used in these really unsavory ways. Uh, to the point where a uh, late, it, I mean, l- long after it had already been completely co-opted by the alt right, yeah. he tried killing Pepe. Mm. And he wrote a Pepe's funeral comic strip. And of course, everybody took those and started co-opting those as well. Uh, and uh, it really, it, in addition to just being about Pepe the Frog and Matt Fury, though, this documentary is really trying to uncover sort of this tr- base troll philosophy mm. that belongs to the modern American right. How they used Pepe as this sort of mask, saying how. How dare you be outraged at all of this, uh, all of this shocking things that I'm saying, and all of this anti-Semitic rhetoric that we're attaching to Pepe the Frog? It's just a cartoon. Mm-hmm. They could use it as an excuse, this kind of thing to hide behind. When mm-hmm. really, a lot of the sentiments were very earnest, and this was used by actual racist people. Yeah, and how using these symbols to confuse and anger people was this really based in this nihilistic need merely to provoke. There's no philosophy behind it. Mm. There's well, no not goal. necessarily for everybody, not but for everybody, in, in but general. In, yeah. as, as depicted in this film, they see a lot of this alt-right movement and indeed the very election of someone like Donald Trump as a, just a base need to shock and offend, and that's the victory. Yeah, that the world, it's not to another end. The world yeah. is shit, nothing is working, we may as well... Uh, kind of as a joke, act as horribly as we can mm-hmm. because there's not going to be any end to this. So if we can make somebody else angry, we win. So it's, it's hard it's to imagine really, a more immature mentality. It, it's but but it's the one that's driving the country right I know, now. It's insane. So it's, it's, it's really so fucking weird. And I think it's very strange to ha- we have to really kind of start thinking through down in these pits of fortune where these very pit pitiful lonely people are spreading racist memes because they are the base philosophy of a whole political party in America right now. It's, so it's weird. Re- this this film is really trying to tear open all of that okay, in but, addition to looking at Pepe the Frog as sort of the key into this phenomenon yeah that, that's that's the that, mm. that makes sense uh, again I didn't see this one yeah aside from illuminating mm. through the weird evolution and de-evolution of Pepe the Frog mm. uh, aside from illuminating how this happens does the movie have anything constructive to say about it, or is it just sort of illuminating well, where it, we're it, how it, this happens? It does leave you off on a little bit of a, a positive note because Matt Fury ended up getting a little jaded by this whole um, affair. Mm-hmm. He, he withdrew for a little I, bit, I and would then too, yeah. and then he realized, wait a minute, a lot of these alt right conspiracy groups are actually making money off of my art, so I can sue them. Yeah. So he actually lawyered up, and he took people like Alex Jones to court because Alex <laughs> Jones was selling posters of all these alt right figures. The president also some alt right 
figures, yeah. and Pepe the Frog was in there. Yeah. And uh, Alex Jones, who's a maniac, you know, had no real defense for it. And they have footage of him trying to defend selling somebody else's art as you know on one of his own posters. Like, oh, I didn't think anything of it. Uh, and we do get to see uh, sort of the two-edged sword of it, that he is taking legal action, but in taking legal action, he's sort of protecting his own artwork. But unfortunately, the damage is kind of already done. Yeah. So in Laura, you can't, you can't he's, put the genie back in that. He's bottle. not fixing anything, but he does feel like he's making a little bit of an advancement. And I think, and I do think, I mean, just based mm-hmm. on my casual perusal of the internet, we've seen a hell of a lot less Pepe the Frog. We have, and indeed, if you look at some of the protests in Hong Kong, mm. Pepe the Frog has been co-opted again, but this time in favor of the protesters. Oh, that's so, so weird. It's, it's been taken away from these hate groups, and it now is being used, ironically, 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 yeah. as a pro-protest a symbol. It's so <laughs> creepy to me how people with malevolent agendas can take something innocuous or even positive and intentionally warp it mm. so that it can become more easily uh, uh, insertable mm. into the mainstream. And yeah, it just gives me the wheelies. It's yeah, a, well, and, and it is fascinating because it's really going to make you feel that, you know, that rock in your stomach mm-hmm. that this is things are really bad right now. And here's why. And it's actually really simple, petty reasons why this thing is happening. Horrible. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, that sounds fascinating. Yeah. And then uh, there's, and then lastly, we have a Shakespeare movie. We do. And I'm actually bummed. I didn't get to see this one because I like Shakespeare movies. So tell mm-hmm. me about measure for measure. Uh, measure for measure is based on measure for measure by oh. William Shakespeare. <laughs> what a twist. What a surprise. Uh, it's directed by Paul Ireland. It's an Australian production and it's, only f- follows measure for measure story to a point. Does he use the language or no? no? Okay. It's modern setting and it's modern language, but it's still, and it's elements of Shakespeare's story, but it's still a Shakespeare's title. Okay. Uh, if you don't know measure for measure, it's okay. Uh, it's one of Shakespeare's more obscure plays. Uh, it's often presented as one of his problem plays and that they don't really know what genre it belongs to. Yeah. But it's about, uh, it's about a duke who leaves an underling in charge of his dukedom mm. uh, and and then returns in disguise to see how well he's handling things. And it turns out uh, he makes some pretty bad decisions and ultimately starts to use his power to coerce a nun into a sexual relationship. It's pretty, oh. Yeah, it's pretty ugly. Uh, and oh. the, the nun goes to this this substitute duke to plead a case, and it, and he ends up saying, "Well, I'll, I'll let you have what you want, but you got to sleep with me." It's like I'm a nun; I'm not going to do that. No, that's Weird. gross. And there's okay. a, a lot, and that's in here too. This one's a little bit more modern. Um, the duke has to leave because there's this brazen act of. Uh, of, like public racist murder that happens on his watch. So mm-hmm. he has to leave town. Uh, it takes a lot of comings and goings to figure out where he's going. Uh, and meanwhile, the, the nun character is actually having a very sweet romance with one of the gangsters who also works for this Duke character. The Duke is played by Hugo Weaving. He's awesome. the, the one recognizable actor. He's a very forceful actor. He's a really good actor. Um, I like him a lot. Uh, it's, it's, uh, Almost a pity that he's known for something like the Red Skull because that's not his best work. And he got he's he's one of those great character actors. Like he was a wonderful actor mm. in uh, working in Australia for many many years. He had a lot of wonderful films over there, and then like a lot of great you know overseas actors, Hollywood finds out they exist and boom they're villains. 
<laughs> like there was this period of time in like the mid to late nineties when Gary Oldman was every bad guy. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. That, and it happened with uh, Alan Rickman as well. Mm. And it happened with Hugo Weaving where all of a sudden he was this breakout villain in the matrix. And now he's also the red skull and he also is the voice of Megatron. And right. he's just kind of stuck being a bad guy to the point where, uh, and even, even though it really wasn't that deep into his sort of international stardom, his international success, uh, when he was cast as Elrond in Lord of the Rings, a lot of people were just like, isn't he a bad guy? <laughs> like, no, it's, it's Elrond. But yeah, but it's played by Hugo Weaving. I keep yeah, expecting him to do something evil. Like, it was weird. But my point is, he can play nuanced human characters. He's not just yeah. fantasy creatures. Yeah. And, uh, Sorry to suck him and, and here he plays, yeah, a much more nuanced character as, like, a lot more... He's actually a very moral character. So when he sees his underling doing some immoral things, he gets to step forward and say, I object to all mm. of this. Uh... It's unfortunately very, very slow. Oh. Uh, it, it just takes so long to get going, and it never, because it's not really focusing on the operatic evil hmm. of a Shakespearean character, it's losing a lot of its dramatic power. Yeah. If you're going to adapt Shakespeare, I mean, adapt Shakespeare, really go for it. Just yeah. go for the jugular. It's so easy to make Shakespeare ponderous. You mm. have to like actually make sure you understand the text well enough to know that it's supposed to be brisk yeah, and, and, and exciting. Yeah. It, it all does revolve around the same plot point with the play and this film, mm-hmm. but the film takes a long time to get there, and then it kind of speeds through it in this really fast way. Uh-huh. It's, it's like the one thing, if there's that one scene, you know, in Measure for Measure, it takes almost no time at all in this film, uh, and it doesn't climax in an interesting way. It's like uh, go, getting to uh, Hamlet and the to be or not to speech is just sort of rambled through. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, th- we came here to see this. We want to <laughs> see that part. What the hell, man? Yeah. Yeah. Dude, uh, I appreciate that's, sort that's of, how uh, a lot of people feel about comic book movies, too. Yeah. Like, you know, hey, I came here to see Batman, B- Batman's parents die again. Like, that's, <laughs> that's part of it. That's part of the myth. Like, right. you can't cut this stuff. Like, this is kind of fundamental. Like, mm-hmm. I know we've seen it a million times. You've seen Romeo and Juliet a million times, too. You're not going to cut them dying, are you? Like, it's kind of <laughs> fundamental. I would love to see some some like asshole filmmaker just really be brazen about it. Completely straight rendition of of Romeo and Juliet, uh-huh. but, but then they, 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 make, but then a they survive, yeah, make a happy ending. <laughs> they survive at the end. I think it'd be fun. Othello catches Iago, and they all live. But here's what you do: you film it in such a way that it looks like reshoots. Like oh, you, you wait go. like a year, and you tell everyone to put on like some weight or take off some weight or change their hair and, and have, have to put on a bad wig. Have and, somebody grow a beard in the yeah. meantime. Yeah, 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 just something, just something that just shows that this was a reshoot. <laughs> Shoot one of the actors from behind only. So yeah, it looks like they got uh, we, we couldn't get Bruce Willis back for the last act. So like them. Yeah, that's the way you do it. Yeah. I would Real, love really to see, subtly meta. Love to see a Shakespeare adaptation. Like really that. subtly meta. Um, well, it sounds like that's a bit of a bummer. It, it's a bit of a bummer because okay. uh, a measure for measure doesn't get a lot of play, and uh, a good film version is certainly welcome. And this yeah. is just sort of a, a blah film version. It's a, li- a little bit, a little bit dull. At the li- very least, it has some. Uh, I can tell it was Australian authenticity. I'm not Australian, but you can always tell when a film puts in a little extra effort to get a time and a place really correct. Mm-hmm. And I think this one actually does capture a certain uh, borough of Australia very, very well. Or at least it seems to. Uh, yeah, to my eye. Well, that can be noble, too. Uh, okay, so it's time to review these movies on the critically acclaimed scale. If you're new or need a reminder, the critically acclaimed scale goes from C- minus to C+. Plus. The highest you can get is a C+. Plus. That is above average. Everything from the best movie ever made to we genuinely recommend you see this. Mm. C minus is below average. Everything mm. from oh that wasn't very good to mm. that's the worst thing ever. 
That's C minus. But most movies get a C, and C is average. You know, it might appeal more to some people than others, but it's just sort of fine. Mm-hmm. Measure for measure on the critically acclaimed scale. This is C. It's fine. Okay. It's fine. It's it's not a horrible watch, but I just wish it had been better. Okay. Uh, yeah. Feels Good Man, the documentary about that's, Pepe the Frog. That's a C plus. I really recommend this one. It's a okay. good analysis of the time we're living in. All right. Uh, the Andorra Hustle. Uh, a C. It's okay. yeah, more just good information, but not much of a film. Uh, love guaranteed. A C minus. Go away, love guaranteed. <laughs> uh, it's also a C minus. I, I didn't. I didn't have a visceral reaction to it the way mm. you did, and I think if you like rom coms, but also enjoy watching rom coms that don't work. <laughs> like, right. which is a thing. Like, some people like watching slasher movies that aren't very good, but you can still kind of get into it because they're hitting some familiar beats. Yeah, you might have some entertainment watching this, but this is not a good rom com. It's mm. a C minus. Uh, I'm thinking of ending things. I'll go first. I'll give Whitney the final. <laughs> word. Uh, I'm giving this a C minus. Mm. It is very well intentioned. There's a lot of excellent craft in here. It's shot beautifully. A lot of good performances, mm. but ultimately, I feel like. It's a whole lot of gimmickry over something that I found frustratingly straightforward. Oh, well, what you've kind of, what you call gimmicky, I find uh, very expressive and artistic. Uh, what you find very straightforward, I found very uh, ambivalent and complex. Uh, and I and it's one of my favorite films of this year. I think. Yep. Uh, so I give one it of my big, least favorites. I give so it a big old C plus. That's uh, we just couldn't be more different on this one, <laughs> and that's fine. Sometimes that's fine. Sometimes mm. that's fun. Uh, and then lastly. Mulan. Mulan, it's you know it's, it's 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 a C. It's not so okay. bad to be a C minus. Uh, it's definitely not a C plus though. It's okay. uh, it's a lot of impressive pageantry and slick A level filmmaking in service of characters that don't really come alive hmm. in in any kind of significant way beyond. Uh, a, the perfunctory way in which they often do in action pictures. Fair enough. All right. Uh, so that is the new releases for the week. And now we enter the magical realm of the critically acclaimed streaming club. Once again, this is where Whitney and I offer our patrons an opportunity to vote for films that are appearing on one or more particular streaming services every single week. These are films that one or both of us haven't seen before. Mm. So that at least one of us is having some sort of revelatory new experience. And, uh, yeah, and we sort of uh, dissect it and review it, and it's a whole thing. Uh, this week, again, the uh, films that were, uh, we had the option of 1950s movies on Criterion, and as a caveat, if anyone's curious, last week I mistakenly, mm-hmm. mistakenly announced that the winner of the poll was an anthology horror film called Three Cases of Murder, starring Orson Welles. Uh, that came in a extremely close second. It was up when I checked the poll, but I guess I must have checked the poll just before it closed, and apparently it shifted before all was said and done, and in the end, the winner was Roger Vadim's And God Created Woman. So, we're reviewing that instead. I apologize. At some point, we should do a poll that's like all like the second place stuff that came really, really close. <laughs> there you go. That, let's, let, maybe we'll try to remember to do that next time. Okay. We've already, we already had the poll for this week, but remind me, we'll try to do that next week. Um, but so, yeah, so we're doing A God Created Woman, a movie which I had never seen and you hadn't either. I hadn't either. Yeah, this is new for both of us. All right. So, tell us a little bit about dot, dot, dot mm-hmm. and God Created Woman. Uh, yeah, this was uh, Roger Vadim. Roger Vadim uh, made this film in the 50s. He. 
uh, has been credited as being one of the filmmakers who uh, caught the attention of the critics and filmmakers who would go on to sort of spark off the French New Wave. Mm. So this is like a pre-New Wave film. I see this as a bridge between the New Wave and something like Rebel Without a Cause, mm. which was made uh, a few years earlier. Yeah. Um it, but it's, it's basically yeah. in the 1950s, it's, they were still seen, the production code was still very, very strong in America, and mm. the idea of putting increasingly salacious, whether it's violence or sex or any other mm. sort of uh, controversial topic or subject matter, uh, in a film, this was starting to be something filmmakers would be able to experiment with, yeah. as opposed to something that they simply felt like they couldn't yeah. do. Uh, Roger Vadim uh, was married to Bridget Bardot when he made this, and uh, Bridget Bardot just represents sex. Mm-hmm. She is pure sexuality in this movie. And uh, she, in fact, the first time we see her, she's nude. It's, it's not like full frontal nudity. We see her like from the side. Yeah, you know, we see her nude body from the side, and there's a lot of sexuality in this. And indeed, it is about sexually liberated people in a little seaside town. It's, I think it's Saint Tropez, uh, who uh, are there. Are these two sexually liberated people. One, one's a young man. He's a little bit of a hothead. He's um, I think Antoine is his name, and. Uh, and Bridget Bardot is the other one, and she's very uh, sexually liberated. Mm-hmm. She's uh, very big on just sort of going out on the town and having fun and not mm-hmm. really giving a damn about, doesn't really give a damn about her bad reputation. Yeah, she's, uh, uh, she's flirtatious. Uh, she isn't, however, and this is interesting, because we don't explicitly see her actually having all the affairs she is accused of having. No. It's implied that she is. But we never actually see it, and the movie invites the audience to basically decide for ourselves, is this a woman who is sexually empowered, but about whom the various men in the town Mm -hmm. have decided to inflate the stories about her promiscuity, or is she promiscuous and in the movie is simply not showing us all of that? And that's both interpretations are in there. I have mine. Um... But, uh, yeah, so she has developed this reputation, and the problem is that she is currently, she's an orphan, and she's living with a family, and they are tired of her, the the various stories about her promiscuity getting out, and they say, we're going to send you back to the orphanage, you're going to be there until you're 21. She's currently 18, Mm. so there's an element of sort of almost the ridiculous here, in that she's not allowed to actually make her own decisions and yeah, deal with her own consequences. I'm not sure what, like, a age of consent is, uh, mm-hmm. or, like, a- actual, like, adult age well, laws at, at, in the France at the time. We, 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 we reviewed the Antoine Duenel films, mm-hmm. or at least the first two, and uh, that was another one where he's sent back to an orphanage and he isn't let out until he's able to go into the army. So right. the idea is you're you're considered like a ward of the state for a pretty long time. Mm-hmm. And the only way for her to escape this is to get married. So she has, a, she, she's not even actually really pursuing it that bad. She's actually being kind of laissez-faire about the whole thing. Uh, but she has a certain number of suitors. Mm-hmm. She has this guy, Antoine, who is pretty aloof about a sexual interest in her, and in fact, they meet at a party earlier in the movie. It seems like they're going to go out and, huff and have a good time, but then she goes to the bathroom before they go, and she overhears him in the bathroom, basically talking about how she's a floozy, and he's not going to treat her well, and she's not going to care. Mm-hmm. And that offends her, and she runs off on him. Um, he also has a younger brother, who is less confident, and deeply in love with her, 
And she also has a a businessman who is seems to be into shady dealings, but it's hard to say exactly how shady. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, he's he he lacks scruples, uh, and he is very very interested in her sexually, but she has never actually had sex with him. Yeah, and so he is and he, and he, kind he, of waiting in the wings to have his moment. Yeah, he flirts with her a lot. She she flirts back to be playful, but mm-hmm. you know that of course just leads him on. And yeah, and uh, so. What what ends up happening is that the younger brother of Antoine, uh, whose name is uh, Michel, mm. he asks Mich- uh, 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 Bridget Bardot to marry him. And yeah, this is a marriage of convenience, but he's in love with her. Mm. And with Antoine out of town, and she's like the guy she had the biggest, most passionate like crush, love mm. affair, whatever with. With Antoine out of town... She actually settles down and it's like, listen, I'm not going to change who I am, but I am going to try to make this work yeah. because he's a sweet guy. He's very, very nice to me. I like him a lot. I'm going to try to make this work. Problem is the uh, the rich, unscrupulous guy and Antoine enter a deal wherein the rich guy buys Antoine's land and business, but Antoine is now going to run this business, and now he's mm-hmm. moving in back in with the family, and now shit's getting real awkward. <laughs> like, shit's getting real yeah, well, bad. And, uh, but what I appreciate, though, it's it's this is a film that is sort of uh, giving it on the chin to misogyny, yes, and how uh, uh, this whole notion of, of slut-shaming and bad, uh, bad reputations and the fallen woman... Uh, there, there's even this really uh, ins- horribly insulting scene where one of the the old biddies in the town goes into the bookshop where she works. Mm-hmm. And says you should go to a clinic, and they can clear you. Well, it's not, and, it's not even a biddy. She, well, she's actually from the orphanage. Yeah, and she says like I was coming in here just to check in on you, and you've already presented me in the thirty seconds that I've talked to you as being lazy and rude. So mm-hmm. I'm going to send you right back to that orphanage. The only chance you have is either to get married or go to a clinic and prove you're still a virgin. Yeah, yeah. The, and, the, the idea is to prove she's still a virgin by uh-huh. going to a gynecologist. And she she says I didn't realize love was a crime. Although you seem to have been inoculated, and that's that's what a wonderful cutting jibe mm-hmm. to take back her power and insult this woman. Yeah, Bridget Bardot's character here is interesting because all the men in the movie mm-hmm. to varying degrees treat her like property or potential property mm-hmm. or as something or a that sca- is scapegoat of some or a scapegoat kind, yeah. or something that is disposable or to be regarded with scorn or lust. Mm-hmm. Uh, and meanwhile, Bridget Bardot, who's really great in this movie, she's just being a person Mm-hmm. Now, is she sort of balking at the conventional mores of the town in which she lives? Yes. Hmm. Does that bring unwanted attention to her? Yes. Is she going to do anything about that? No. No. Fuck those guys. Who cares? <laughs> I'm doing whatever I want to do. And it really shouldn't be any of their business or problem. Mm-hmm. But it is. The movie never quite becomes this. I feel like it's tottering around. And almost, um, oh, why am I blanking on the name? Who did Dogville? Lars von Trier. It almost feels like we're heading towards a Lars von Trier kind of tragedy in the third oh, act, like, where like all the, the, the men gang, in town, the, the gang, the town will gang up on her and kill her. The it, town will something. gang up on her. All the brothers will turn on each other, and they kind of do, but not mm. in this sort of grand, almost Shakespearean tragedy kind of way. Like the idea is that. Men are responding to her in a very, very negative way. But in the end, 
it says more about the men than it does about her. Yeah. And that, I feel, is a saving grace of the film because I had two things that really frustrated me about it. Okay. One, for all of the sort of um, sensuality that the film wants to present, mm. especially regards to Bridget Bardot, but also Antoine gets some mm. handsome, rugged, uh, uh, streetcar named Desire torn shirt kind of stuff. <laughs> uh, for all of the sensuality that the film boasts... Mm. Um, because so much of the film is about the way that men view her, uh, it ends up feeling actually weirdly conservative about it, which is almost makes it weird that this film was so controversial, mm. considering how ultimately it doesn't really get all that salacious. Well, it, it uh, here's what I appreciate about this film. Uh, it has Bridget Bardot. Mm. You have Bridget Bardot in a movie, you're going to point a camera at her. She's amazing. Uh, she, she's, she's very a, photogenic she's amazing. and she's yeah, very talented. She, she's just... you. Often called a universal sex symbol, and yeah. that's that's fine. Um, the film is never gross about it. The film mm-hmm. is on her side. I agree. The film is letting her be as sexual as she wants to be, mm-hmm. and the film is not punishing her for it. And the film is looking at all of the the people around her as being the villains who are making her feel as if she's out of place. I, I agree with and you. And indeed, uh, a okay. lot of this film is about how these these this young married couple what they're going to do and how they essentially just need their own Eden, hence the biblical title. Mm-hmm. And there is indeed, there's a, a scene where she takes a boat out and they end up crash landing somewhere. And for a few moments, it's this weird sort of Edenic imagery where it's just the two of them on a beach mm-hmm. in torn clothes and how they're, uh, they're out there in, in the world by themselves, free to be the Adam and Eve that mm-hmm. they kind of long to be. It's only when interlopers come in mm-hmm. with temptations and vices and their own hangups and, and, and BS yeah. that tragedy starts to take hold. Yeah. So yeah. It's, if everyone just left the, her the, the hell alone, we would have no yeah, problem. The, the tragedy is not her flaw. The tragedy yeah. is that she's a strong, uh, complete human being who knows mm-hmm. who she is. Yeah. Uh, living in a place that's not accepting her. I, I agree, and that's not my biggest problem with the movie. Right. I just feel like, ultimately, the film could have done a better job, I think, of being on her side, and I think it's kind of trying to have its cake and eat it, too, a little bit. Yeah. Which is, again, not my biggest problem with the movie. My biggest problem with the movie is that it's actually a little dull. <laughs> like, it's actually really dry for like a lot of it. There are these. There's this great moment towards the end where brother has turned against brother Chekhov's gun has gone off yeah, like there's there's a big old Chekhov's gun there's a big one. old Chekhov's gun that's a whole thing and she's basically been scorned rejected uh, uh, torn apart and she's had a bit of a nervous breakdown and she goes to a tavern mm-hmm. and she she's just sitting there just almost catatonically staring forward like I can't believe all this shit has happened. This sucks so much. <laughs> and then she hears a very good mm. like house band rehearsing downstairs. And she, who has explicitly said the only things that she cares about, she doesn't care about money. She cares about sun. She cares about sand. She cares about music. She cares mm. about the life's simple pleasures. Yeah. She goes downstairs, and she basically has a dance number. It's not like elaborately choreographed. It's not flash dance or anything, but... Mm. She just gives in to the music, and she just expresses herself through dance, mm. and that's too much for some of the men in her life to handle. Because because it her her crime is how gorgeous she is, yeah, 
And and that's every, not and, and that's the men, not the crime. The, the crime is how men react, react to that. The men react to that and assume that she's kind of tantalizing them on purpose right. to make them feel tempted when really she's just feeling joy and living her life. Yeah, and the reason why and, I love hence, this, you know, taking you know, taking on misogyny. Yeah, and the reason why I love this scene is because this is one of the few scenes in the movie where she really gets to let loose and show who she is, and even mm. if she can't be articulate about it, she is expressing herself in a very pure, very lively, very honest way. And I felt like when I'm watching the scene and it's so alive and vibrant and good and I realize that's kind of what the movie was missing so much. She has been trying to have to live in both worlds, trying to survive in a society that scorns her for being sensual without giving up that mm. altogether. Yeah. And this is one of the things that I think is, is frustrating because I feel like for two thirds of the movie, if we'd seen a little more of that, I think the movie would have had an energy to it that would have been undeniably captivating. And instead, we're just sort of setting the stage for a, a, a kind of interesting but ultimately somewhat uneventful love triangle or quartet trage- mm-hmm. uh, tragedy. And I don't know. I just I wasn't really wrapped up in it. I can appreciate it. Mm. And I think when you look at this film in the context of when it was made, when this kind of sensual filmmaking was definitely not mainstream, was still very, very new. There was a lot of controversy. Films came to America. A lot of movie theaters were encouraged not to show it because it's just too brazen. <laughs> it's um, too sexy. How dare you? Point a camera at Bridget Bardot in general, um, but uh, and and I get that I understand the historical significance of this movie and good for them for for making it. Mm. Uh, watching it today, it's a little slow. That's that's my biggest complaint it's, with it. It's a little it's a little slow. It's a little slow, but it yeah. is a, it is a French film made in the fifties. So and I, I'm I willing think to that, yeah. if the shoe fits. That's yeah. all I'm gonna say. <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd I'd rather watch something like this than you know maybe like. So even some of Godard's early films are kind of hard to sit through. They're, I they're found li- that true about almost every Godard they're, yeah, they're, movie they're, I've seen. I haven't seen them all, but I've, everyone like, I've if, seen them. If like, you watch, watch Band of Outsiders, it's like, oh, wow, they have such an interesting relationship. Are they going to do anything? No, yeah. they're just going to go to another cafe. Yeah. All right. Oh, they're dancing. That's fun. Oh, that's it. Godard made a sci-fi detective story. It's called Alphaville. It is one of the most boring sci-fi <laughs> films I've ever seen in my life. It's so Dull. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, this isn't quite that dull. And I think it's because it has these spikes of drama, these spikes of infidelity, sensuality, humor. Yeah, yeah. But in the in between those things, it feels like it really could have been punched up a little. Oh yeah, I, that, that, that's not the, I, not well, the greatest think, crime in the world. I was just a little I was a little bored through some of it. I think it's a good character piece. I think it's a good way of examining the way uh, women are treated badly around the world. Agreed, uh, especially in France in the 1950s. Agreed, uh, and and it, it's uh, essentially encapsulating the idea that a woman's sensuality is her fault mm. rather than her freedom. Uh, and how she refuses to let people tell her it's her fault mm-hmm. and that she treats it as her freedom. And I think it's a very uh, very poignant, very liberating, uh, very striking movie as a result of that. Mm-hmm. I, I was a little less enamored of it, I think, mm-hmm. than you, but I appreciate its place in the cinematic canon. I'm really, really glad I saw it. Yeah, me too. So uh, thank you, everybody, for voting for it. Um, uh, next time uh, on Critically Acclaimed, we're going to go back to Netflix. Haven't been back in a bit. 
And uh, all of the nominees on this week's poll are family films on Netflix. Um, we we actually ran the poll a little late, and we always want to run it for at least 24 hours. So, so it's, it's still not final. Huh? It's still not final, but as of right now, mm. the the film, which is pretty clearly in the lead, uh, is All Dogs Go to Heaven. So there's an excellent chance we'll be reviewing that next week, but there's still time for that to turn around. Mm. Um, also next week, we'll review other stuff. Other films that are coming out next week. Perhaps. Maybe we'll see Tenet. No, we won't. We, we probably won't see, won't see yeah, Tenet. We probably won't see Tenet or New Mutants. They're, not, they're not giving them to us. So but that, they don't have to. They don't but have as to. a result, in a situation mm-hmm. like this, mm-hmm. it's hard for us to see them. So we probably won't be able to for a while. And that stinks. I want to see them. When, when we do, we'll talk about them. Yeah. But until then, they will remain unseen. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we're going to do our best. And that's, uh, that's all we can that's all we can hope for. So mm-hmm. thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, everybody, for subscribing. Thank you, everybody, for supporting the show, however you support the show. Of course, uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. If you want to talk to us about any of our reviews from this week or, indeed, anything else in general, you want to ask us questions, ask for recommendations, or anything at all, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net is the email. That is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We may read your email and answer it on an upcoming episode of We've got mail right here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. And, of course, uh, you can head on over to patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network to vote for future episodes of the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club. You can also hear a ton of exclusive content, including uh, all our yesterdays, in which Whitney and I are reviewing every single episode of Star Trek ever in production order. That's a weekly series. We also have Not on Disney+, Plus, a monthly series in which we explore movies that should be on Disney+, Plus but mysteriously are not. This month, we're going to be talking about the sequel to Old Yeller. Yes, there was one. <laughs> Uh, we uh, also have Only the Best, where we review every single film ever nominated for a Best Picture. We have a commentary track. Right now, we're having a bit of a runoff poll to determine which Star Wars movie Whitney and I are going to do a commentary for this month. And uh, also, we are just about to start releasing our new podcast, Holy Batman. Holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y. Holy Batman. In which uh, we're reviewing every single episode of the 1960s live-action Batman television series. And that is a very, very exciting thing to do. So thank you, everybody, once again for listening. Uh, We hope you are staying safe and sane out there. It's been a hell of a year. Let's try to get through it as best we can. Uh, And uh, never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what?